0: It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Connie Stevens episode of The Muppet Show, which also features Ernie and Bert. Welcome to Muppeturgy. It is I, David Levy, and I am
1: here with... Adam Grosworth.
2: Christy Bauer. Michael Richardson.
1: So we are still recording a few episodes in advance of the Disney Plus release date, and we are still not sure which order Disney Plus is going to use... Uh, when they do that, but I'm pretty confident that this is not our first episode. This was the second episode that the Muppet People made as a pilot. So it was shot about two months before the rest of the first season in January 1976. It was filmed the week of President Ford's State of the Union. Not sure why States of the Union are a. becoming a running theme on this podcast, in which the president asked Congress to address the economic crisis by reducing taxes and cutting spending to spur private industry, which sounds familiar and worked so well. And also the use of red number two food dye was banned by the FDA. And there was an oil crisis, which strangely comes up in the episode.
0: He used to sing this to me in his hot rod back in 1956. (laughs) Your first love, huh? Yeah. Sure was a beautiful car. I, I, I met Jimmy McAfee. Oh, yeah, Jimmy McAfee. Hmm. Kermit, boy, did I love him. He had this long, thick, greasy hair, you know, and used to wear this big leather jacket. Hmm? And you know something? If we had saved Jimmy's hair, we wouldn't have any oil shortage today
1: topical this was uh well this was the second episode made of the muppet show it was the 20th to air in the united states over a year later on um, february 26th 1977 and later still in the uk that april
0: and if you're sitting there wondering why is there a baby doll talking to kermit well that is our <laughs> guest star today connie stevens <laughs> if you're like me and you hear the name connie stevens you might think wait a minute is that connie francis no uh <laughs> Connie Stevens was an actress and a singer who uh, really had her biggest success in the 50s. She was on a TV show called Why and I, playing the character Cricket Blake, starting in 1959. And at the same time, she had a radio hit called 16 Reasons, which peaked at number three on Billboard Hot 100 in the U.S. and also in the U.K. their singles chart. Like Juliet Prowse, she also dated Elvis. That is a weird connection, and we're sort of wondering how many Muppet Show guest stars will have had sexual relations with either Elvis, Frank Sinatra, or both. We'll see. I'm going to start a little Italian in my notebook. Or Kermit. No, just kidding.
2: I mean, we're going to be keeping Italian. How many female guests flirt with Kermit?
0: Definitely. Uh, So by the end of the 60s, she was really transitioning from television and movies and recording into live performance. She was on Broadway as the star of the Neil Simon play Star Spangled Girl. And she started doing Vegas shows and she went on USO tours and so that made her sort of a natural for the variety show element of The Muppet Show when they needed someone to help sort of be the proof of concept. And if you are like me and you sort out in your head that she is not Connie Francis, then you realize that she's also one of the stars of Grease too. She plays the teacher who teaches sex ed. And it's actually a very similar role to what she plays in The Muppet Show, which
1: is some blonde hair and boobs and not a whole lot else. Feminism. <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Um, I found this, uh, there's this quote on her Wikipedia that I was fascinated by um, from an interview from 1988, where she says, I'm a big star all over the world, except in Hollywood. I play nightclubs in Japan and Hong Kong every Christmas and New Year's. I don't have a hit TV show. I don't have a hit record. I don't have a hit movie. But I created something that people still love. I invented cricket. There was barely a part written for me. Half the time, I said whatever I wanted. I was everybody's daughter. I was everybody, I was every boy's fantasy girlfriend. Girls wanted to be like me. That good feeling still exists. That's why I'm a big business with 17 people working for me. I may not be the richest woman in the world, but I do okay. But Hollywood is a different story, which I think speaks to the kind of star that she was at the time of The Muppet Show, which is like an maybe, a, I don't want to say it doesn't exist anymore, but it exists less than it did in the 70s and 80s. But also, again, feminism. I think there is almost certainly a hint of misogyny to her career arc and um, the way that she feels about her fame that I just want to, I, I don't want it to go unsaid.
0: <laughs> yeah, but also, you know, much like David Hasselhoff or Jerry Lewis. She's someone who was a bigger star abroad. And this was a show that they were selling not only in the U S but also all over the world. So that probably ended up being a benefit for her in terms of why they wanted her to be a guest star. Um, Two last sort of trivia points about her. One is that uh, she was famously married her second marriage to Eddie Fisher, you know, the former husband of Debbie Reynolds and uh, father of Carrie Fisher. Uh, They had two kids together, including actress, Jolie Fisher, who you might remember from Ellen's sitcom, and she was a longtime donor to the Republican Party and a big supporter of John McCain when he ran for president. And when I Googled this to try to find out if she was a Trump supporter, I'm guessing not because it appears that Trump's allies in the tabloid press started a slander campaign, which, as far as I can tell, just originates with them and has no basis in reality that she and McCain had an affair towards the end of his life. Again, I don't think it's true. The only places where this appears are in like the grossest corners of Twitter and the National Enquirer. But that's what you get when you Google Connie Stevens in 2021.
1: She also uh, appeared on Ellen as a guest star um, with her daughter and was in Clueless and Baywatch. I mean, she's she's kept working. She's She hasn't gone away, which is nice. So this is unique among Muppet Show. Episodes. I don't know if it's the only one where this happens,
0: but certainly in the early episodes, it's unique in that there is more than one guest star. And uh, let's hear Kermit announce it. It's the Muppet
3: Show with our very special guest star, Connie Stevens. And from Sesame Street, Bernie and Bert.
0: So that that I, I knew that Ernie and Bert were in this episode, and it still sort of caught me off guard to hear Kermit introduce them like celebrity guest stars. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, I think it's it's helpful to remember that again. This is a few years after the debut of Sesame Street. Ernie and Bert were the early breakout stars of Sesame Street, and even though there was a real desire on the part of Jim Henson, even more so on the part of uh, Children's Television Workshop, to keep a pretty thick line between the Sesame Street Muppets and uh, the Jim Henson Muppets, who could do things like commercials and adult appearances. Yeah. There were there were crossovers, there were cameos, and here we get Bert and Ernie as like honest to goodness full on announced in the title song guest stars of the Muppet Show. Previously, they had a very brief cameo in the Muppet Valentine Show, but here they get to do an act and a number in the whole thing.
2: And here everybody knows their names.
1: Right. Why don't you get uh, so Michal, what are your overall impressions of this episode?
2: Connie Stevens feels so incredibly game for anything, it, up to and including uh, sharing the guest star spotlight with a couple of puppets from a kid's show. I just appreciate how she's she's up for anything, even if it feels like she might be upstaged. She's up for having to show up and just flirt with Kermit. And then when Fozzie walks in, she has to flirt with him too. She doesn't mind having to do a passionate dance number with a puppet and having to wear a dress that looks kind of hard to dance in. And doing this awkward, cutesy teenager in love thing that somehow made her seem the wrong age to be doing that. She seemed like she was too old and too young for it to be cute at the same time, but she was up for it.
3: I agree. She's somebody who seems to know her limits, and but seems to know how to work with that. Like she gets how they're like complemented or enhanced by Muppet energy.
1: I always want as much human Muppet interaction as possible with the guest star, and I, I really appreciate that. With the exception of one number, which we'll get to, um, right, all of her scenes are are with Muppets, and um, especially with Bert. Right? She. I mean, you already said she's she's super game, and and that's. I want that silliness and that subversion of, of songs and, you know, all of that. And then she's, she's working. I like it.
0: Yeah. I think this is an episode for me that had a lot of clips that I really like, but didn't quite come together as a, a fully formed final product for me. And I think part of that is just that uh, I was a little bit uncomfortable with Connie Stevens as a personality. So first of all, her thing seems to be that she's a nostalgia act for the fifties, which is not an era that I personally have nostalgia for. So that already there's like a little bit of remove and that's sort of like, Oh, I'm pushing 40, but being forced to act like a giggly teenager just made me like a little uncomfortable, a little sad, sad, comfortable.
1: I don't know. (laughs) It is weird. And that, that clip we played of the oil shortage joke, uh, the, the oil shortage joke itself like doesn't bother me, but that, it's actually really badly written. Like they, it's kind of rambles. It's it's a really, like it the car and then the guy and then they go away from the guy's hair and then they come back to the guy's hair and it's it's it, the show would just get so much better later on at that type of joke writing, and also the backstage plot. I am I am on record el- elsewhere um, at the the late lamented previously TV and the still thriving extra hot great. I have made the case on both of those places that. I want the Muppet show to be 30 rock. I, I love a good backstage plot. And this show has one that's really fun. This episode has one that's really fun, but it's not, um, it's not really relevant to anything. Like I want, I want show business shenanigans. Uh, and this doesn't have that, but I don't think we're going to get that actually for a while in season one.
0: Yeah. I think the best backstage plots are the ones that really take, Muppet personalities and sort of play them against each other. And this one starts to do that really with Gonzo and Fozzie, but neither of them are quite fully formed yet. So that's why I think it, it
1: it has sparks but doesn't quite get to the point of fire. We are getting ahead of ourselves. Christy, why don't you tell us about the songs?
3: So this episode is Chock-a-Block with Songs. The first one is a Kermit number called Lydia, the Tattooed Lady, and it's performed with a pig named Lydia. I think we all have a lot of thoughts about Lydia herself. Uh, The song itself uh, was written by Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg, who are probably most famously known as the songwriters from The Wizard of Oz. And this song was written the same year or or, uh, came out the same year as Wizard of Oz for a different movie, the Marx Brothers movie, At the Circus this particular number is believed to be added between when this was a pilot and when it actually aired later in the season. Another weird bit of trivia about it is um, Kevin clash. Did this number as Elmo at Jim's Memorial
1: Oh, as Elmo as Elmo (laughs) DVD pop-ups said that it was one of Jim's favorite songs and that it was performed at his memorial, they did not say that Elmo performed it at the memorial. <laughs> it,
0: yep.
1: It's also notable that Jim did this as Rolf on Old Brown Harris's back. That makes more character sense to me, just because Rolf was always horny. But Well, and it's, it's the
0: kind of number that he does, you know, like yeah. an old-timey show tune at the piano.
1: This was also on another... We've talked about those Muppet albums in the past, and this was on something that I definitely had. Like, this is a song that I know because I had it on a record, the Kermit version.
0: Yeah, it was on the, the that
1: Muppet Show original
0: cast album. I think they yeah, must which I have... didn't
1: think I had when you talked about it before, and then this started playing, and I was like, oh no, I had this on a record for sure. So I guess yeah. I did have it.
0: And it's also, I think that they probably planned on putting that out pretty early, so I think a lot of those numbers come from these first couple episodes, so that they could get it onto shelves right away.
2: Yeah, I'm sure I've heard this version, and I'm sure I've heard the Ralph version. They're They're both kind of mingled together in my mind in my early childhood experiences.
0: So let's talk about the Lydia puppet. (laughs) Uh,
2: I will tell you right now that she's my favorite Muppet of the week. She's loving it out there. She seems like she's kind of an older pig who's seen the world and she's got this wild feathery maroon hair and she's got these sparkly cat eye glasses. She just seems like she's been around a long time and she knows what she likes and what she likes are these ridiculous glasses and hair, and to get tattoos and to shake her thing. And she loves her curves. She's very light on her hooves, and she's got this very zestful, bouncy, enthusiastic dance thing going on. And she just she loves the dance. She loves the camera. She's uh, just such a ham. I just want more Lydia. Uh-huh.
0: She is absolutely there. the Muppet version of. A burlesque performer on the Lower East Side at 11 o'clock <laughs> on a Thursday night.
3: You know who she looked like to me is Tori Amos. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Yeah, Google pictures of Tori Amos with glasses. It's the same color hair. It's delightful. Oh, I got to find this. Okay.
0: <laughs> I did think it was interesting that this was like a very literal interpretation of the song, which is yes. not always where the Muppets go when they take old songs like this. Although, I guess. In that way, it's very similar to Simon Smith and His Amazing Dancing Bear, and in fact, it's even done on the same set as that number, which was also a number that was filmed to add into one of these pilot episodes after it had already been initially completed. Mm -hmm. So they probably did these both on the
1: same day back to back. Right. One one other thing I learned from the pop-ups just in terms of filming is that um, they shot these episodes in like two days, which seems actually really short to me. I mean, I know they're only like 20 minutes long, but just given the technical work involved, They did like two or three days of table reads and recording the music and then shot them in two days, uh, which I just found interesting. Um, uh, Just as a a technical thing that I noted on this has nothing to do with the puppetry is that they use the actual curtain. Very often when Kermit intros a number, he then walks away and there's a wipe effect from the curtain to the scene. Uh, And in this, he actually steps through the curtain into the set and the curtain goes away. So that's just me being a stagecraft dork.
3: I think it's also worth noting that he's if he's not wearing uh his Froggy Winnacorton outfit from the Valentine's show, he's wearing something very, very close. He's wearing the sort of like barbershop candy stripe and <laughs> uh uh straw hat.
0: Yeah, I compared them. The hat is different and it this is a smaller hat than the Froggy Winnacorton hat, but I think the rest of the outfit is the same.
2: And that hat's gotta like sit on the like if you Think about Jim's hand in there. Like that's got to be the teeniest hat. It like is smaller than the back of your hand. <laughs> it's got to be adorable in your life.
1: So I do not like this puppet. Which is not to say I don't like the puppet tree, right? Like the the Wait, the Kermit puppet or the Lydia you no know, no the, 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 the pig the Lydia puppet. Um, the 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 puppet is amazing, right? Like the is it Frank? Do we know if it's Frank? Uh, I'm it sure it's like Frank. And, 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 yeah, like the 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 work is fantastic. Oddly enough, on this DVD, the pop-ups elsewhere pointed out that most Muppets um, have something around their neck to hide the seam between the head and the body. Like, Fozzie wears a scarf, even though he's otherwise naked. So then when I watched this the second time, after reading that, I could not stop looking at the fact that this pig does not have that. (laughs) And the head and the body seemed to be two completely different textures, and so I was like deeply distracted the entire time. But I also like find her outfit just like it just bugs me. Like it's like the the weird, like the tiny bra, even though she doesn't have boobs. And like some Muppets do have boobs. And we could talk about the how that's weird. But like if you're gonna give her the teeny bra, like I don't know. It's just strange. And like the very low rise Adam wants bigger <laughs> boobs on Pig Puppet. Noted. <laughs> Send them an angry letter. It's a sexual number. So like if you're gonna do it i don't know i think it's weird and then, all bodies are beautiful adam yes but then her outfit should fit her <laughs> yeah her torso is unusually long and then, like the low-rise skirt i don't know because then also actually at the end of the scene we see piggy in like this sort of gorgeous gown that like uh, uh, also doesn't make sense for a pig but makes sense for a <laughs> muppet pig you know what i mean like i don't know i just i just found it strange i just i wish i don't know i guess i wish she looked better. I don't know. Yes, I'm body shaming. I'm up a pig. I don't know what to say. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah, get with it, Adam.
1: <laughs> it's weird.
2: Yeah. I mean, they, they did make a thing out of how Jim drew all these tattoos himself. Yes, they talk about the cool. tattoos and the pop-ups. It is cool, but I, I also, I don't know, I've never tried drawing on onto a puppet, and I wonder if maybe the, if by necessity the head and the body have to be different materials.
0: Yeah. Well, I wonder if they can't do the flocking on the body in order to have the drawings
1: right. work. Well, I just want, I just, I'm curious then why they didn't give her a scarf, though, that, you know, could have been, or like a, a, something, you know, jangly that would have made sense with the costume.
2: She is not ashamed to bear just about everything, including the seam around her neck. It's true. It's also definitely the only time I remember seeing a Muppet twerk.
1: Yes, which is great. Like the, the
0: puppetry of that is really cool. Totally. I was just thinking that if they ever do a Muppet version of Nora Ephron's, I feel bad about my neck. This would be the mother
3: <laughs> yeah. uh, Speaking of making us all feel bad about our necks, uh, the next song uh, <laughs> is a uh, 38-year-old oh, no. th- woman doing uh, Dion and the Belmont's a uh, teenager in love which is a hit from 1959. I was particularly uh, excited to find out that it was written by Doc Pomus and Mort Schumann, which are names that you probably don't necessarily know, um, but you definitely know songs that were hits of theirs in the fifties and sixties. Uh, they wrote turn me loose, this magic moment, save the last dance for me. Can't get used to losing you and Viva Las Vegas. So another Elvis connection as well. I particularly was excited because Mort Schumann's also W- was also the um, main English translator of all of Jacques Brel's songs and is responsible for the uh, review Jacques Jacques Brel's Alive and Well Living in Paris. He was actually even in it hmm. and is on the album. Um, so that's a weird thing. Uh, spe- but speaking of weird things, um, the Dion and the Belmonts version of the song uh, w- was number five on the U.S. charts. But in May, May of 1959, three different versions held spots in the U.K. top 20. Can you imagine how insufferable insufferable radio must have been in the UK at that point?
0: <laughs> Although, better to not I have three different versions of it playing in rotation than like, I'll never forget the summer that more than words by extreme was a hit because I'm from Boston and they're from Boston. And literally you would turn the radio dial to get away from the song to just land on a different station playing the same song. So like a
1: cover version would have been nice just to break it up a little bit. You'd lost, you lost me at turn the radio dial to get away from more than words. Mm. Yeah, that's, <laughs> Can't relate. That's a
3: banger. Um, but Connie Francis performs this with the mutations, who are oversized, slightly freaking muppets. I know Mihal you had something to say about the
2: mutations. I yes, you also said Connie Francis. Oh my god! <laughs> it's Connie not Stevens! just me. It's Connie Stevens. Do you yes. want to say it again, or you want to leave it? No, leave it in. Leave it
3: leave in. It, leave it. No, right. I own my shame. Connie
2: Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I just can are we going to talk about the the mutations are they are they muppets because they're not dancers in question. suits they're dancers in like a monster head and then gloves and these little boots and considering how unencumbered they are by not having to wear a walk around suit kind of thing they should be able to do more choreography than they do I mean, maybe it's that they can't see out of those heads. Maybe that's why they kind of do.
1: I mean, not the mutation specifically, but this style of costume is used in the Rita Moreno episode, which, you know, peek behind the curtain for listeners, we're we're recording tomorrow. So (laughs) I've watched it. But I also have, like, really clear memories of, for example, the Liza Minnelli. Is it Liza Minnelli, the Copacabana number? That's Liza, right? I think so, yeah. And so they use this style of costume when they need a Muppet to really dance. And they don't hear.
0: Yeah,
2: they do not follow through with that capacity to really dance. Which made me wonder, is it just Muppeteers, or sorry, we don't want to say Muppeteers. (laughs) Is it, it, uh, you know, Jim and Frank in there uh, just kind of doing a little kick and a little weird, like, they're rolling their hands. They're slapping the floor. They're, like, doing this little, like, temptation style, bring your hand down in unison, except it's not quite in unison. It just, as a dancer, it made me sad. (laughs)
0: so i have I have a theory here. Well, it's sort of a two- part theory. One is that there's this whole question of like, what is a muppet, right? like what what makes something necessary and sufficient for it to be classified as a Muppet because is is puppetry necessary? Is there anything involved in these mutations that we would consider puppetry or is it just costume? Uh, I don't think we're going to come up with the answer to that. I don't know that the Muppet show themselves ever came up with the answer for that. I think, you know, if it was created by the Muppet Workshop and used in a Muppet context, it's a Muppet. And so these are Muppets, but maybe they're not. But I think part of the answer to that was that they wanted to make sure that these moved like Muppets. And there's actually credit in this episode for John Bottoms for special Muppet dancing. And I think I think, as much as we look at this and see weirdness and sloppiness, I actually think what we're seeing is an attempt for humans to create a choreographic language for how Muppets move that is different from how people move. And they're trying to move like puppets. And John Bottoms, who who gets that credit, was known for being a physical comedian, for being a dancer. He was Tony-nominated for his role in Dance With Me, which was a Broadway musical all about sort of 50s nostalgia dancing. So, uh, you know, someone who was a clown who also was notable for 50s nostalgia dancing, makes sense as the consultant that you hire for how do people dance like Muppets, dancing like people dancing in the 50s. You know, it may not be entirely successful, but as someone who was part of a junior high show choir led by someone who also was obsessed with 50s nostalgia, <laughs> uh, it it read correct to me, even if it was a little sloppy, but, you know, so is junior high show choir.
1: I, I don't, I'm not bothered by the are there, are they not Muppets question. I just found it boring. If that's the level of choreography you're going to use, then it should have been Sweetums and and Thog, and it just I just wish it'd been more fun. I think I think these are the these are the costumes you use because their faces don't move. So because they're they're moved they're not they're not doing very much. You can really see that they're not doing very much if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I and I think you just you reserve these guys for when you need. A dancer dancer and this didn't cough maybe that that was the intent and then they ran out of time i mean we don't know uh, but that i just this was the one the one sketch and i like this song a lot actually Um, this was the one sketch that i found really lackluster Uh,
0: i did not realize until i just looked at the muppet wiki page for them that mutations are named mutations because it's supposed to be a pun on temptations.
1: (laughs) 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 Don't you dare cut this out. (laughs) I I want to shame you on record. (laughs) I only watched this episode
0: twice. Okay.
2: So there's a credit in this episode for quote unquote special Muppet dancing for John Bottoms. And there's also a choreographer credit for Norman Mayen. So we don't, we don't know which of them uh, was responsible for the mutations and which of them was responsible for some enchanted evening, which we'll get to.
0: It's also possible that Norman Maine created the dance routine, and then John Bottoms created how the Muppets would perform the dance routine. That's possible.
3: So the next song on the list uh, is could not be more of a departure from <laughs> <laughs> uh, the teenager in love segment. So this for the UK spot for this episode, the Electric Mayhem perform "Fat Swallers Ain't Misbehavin' with Floyd on lead. It's a song from 1929 from a review called Connie's Hot Chocolates. And I sincerely doubt that the, the Muppet team knew that connection, but I'm delighted by it, <laughs> which is a show that transferred from Harlem to Broadway. It was a Broadway debut of Louis Armstrong. Very uh, important the song also ap- appeared in the movie Stormy Weather. So that's, that's the second Muppet Show connection to that movie. I love this segment. <laughs> uh, it's the there's no gimmick, there's no joke to it. It's just Floyd, Janice, Zoot, and Animal playing, and it's very it's played very straight, but the the puppetry in this segment is glorious. Yeah. Particularly in the the segment with the instrumental solos. It's just, it's beautiful.
0: I always think it's weird when the Electric Mayhem are playing jazz instead of rock. And you wonder, like, is that because this is what they do when Dr. Teeth isn't around? This is where their heart really lies? Or is it just, this is an early episode and they hadn't quite nailed down what their shtick was? So that that just struck me as a little weird. I also think Floyd's voice isn't quite his final voice here, so that struck me as weird.
3: Oh, I also should mention, it. the, the song is... Uh, commonly attributed to Fats Waller, but um, the show it came from had lyrics by Andy Razoff and
2: music also by Harry Brooks. So it was more of a team effort. Yeah, just what a gorgeous clip. It's so confident and relaxed and they're doing all these neat things with colored lights behind them from different angles, but not being showy about it. They're just chilling. I I love this clip. So our next
3: song uh, is part of the Talk Spot. Uh, It's Connie Stevens I'm going to say it right (laughs) (laughs) I've jinxed myself Singing They Long To Be Close To You To Kermit And I think we have a clip We're alone You know something I think it's terrific Being with you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why do stars Fall down from the sky Every time you walk by, just like me, belong to me,
1: close to
3: you. delightful (laughs) so this song very famous uh originally recorded in 1963 by Richard Chamberlain it's a Burt Bacharach Hal David song Um, but the most famous version was recorded by the Carpenters was a big hit in 1970 was number
0: one for four weeks it is super weird to me that with a song this recognizable I get that they need to make it shorter for the gag to work but that they didn't use the very famous opening line and started like three lines in.
3: I I made the same note but and I I suspect that the reason that they didn't use the the famous opening line is they couldn't resist
2: uh, (laughs) doing it literally which is, why do birds suddenly appear every time you were near? Yeah, maybe they were building a bird for this sketch and they didn't have it in time and it was just like, shit, we can't do the cut the birds.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just I love this. Every time I hear it, I like burst out laughing when Fozzie comes in. To me, it immediately reminds me of the film *Parenthood* because uh, Rick Moranis sings this song, and he sings a longer version of it. But he also he does this thing where he starts singing like the harmony with himself, and then he does the ah <laughs> in the same sort of like full throated belty way, and it just it's just so funny because it's the opposite of the like mellow smoothness of the carpenters. And I just, I love it. I love it. It didn't even, I love it so much that it made it less weird that this song is sort of in this context about Kermit and Fozzie
1: forming a throuble with Connie Stevens. <laughs> well, I, I mean, in the larger, the backstage plot, which we haven't talked about yet, right? Fozzie is feeling um, rejected by Kermit and everybody. And I saw it more as them sort of, playfully fighting for attention um i did clip before the song started because i i wanted to note that it, it's now three of the four episodes that we have prepped uh, whatever order you're hearing this in we uh, have had um female guest stars and kermit is a creep in every one of the talk spots this doesn't go very far but that it starts with him saying oh at last we're alone i found just weird and kind of gross oh i always took that as like there's so much like antic energy
0: in the Muppet theater that this is like the one chance that they have to just like chill the two of them.
1: That's true. That makes sense. But they've actually already had a full scene alone. Where they had a long conversation in this episode. I don't and know. And they
2: weren't on stage in front of yeah.
1: people. <laughs> <laughs> also that. But uh in just sort of the larger context where I'm I'm sort of noticing in a way I haven't before even watching as an adult previously, that there's like a lot of weird flirting that happens between Kermit and the human guests. The song sort of undercuts it the way it gets the way it gets played for laughs, especially Fozzie um being very funny in that 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 we we, we talked about it with um Simon Smith and his dancing bear. It it just I love it every time, the look on Fozzie's face. I don't know how far you've made your progress as
0: you're reading the Jim Henson biography, Adam, but I think the more you learn about Jim's relationships with women, the more that the Kermit flirtation makes sense. Okay. Like <laughs> I, I don't like, yes, this is Kermit <laughs> flirting, but it's also like I think maybe a little bit Jim flirting.
1: Oh no, for sure, but it's just still. I mean, and it's, so it's very still
0: super weird. It's just,
1: and it's very seventies talk show. I mean, you know, Dick Cabot flirted with everybody. Like, I get it, but it's. I'm I'm just noticing it in a way that I didn't before, perhaps when that was less a part of our cultural conversation.
3: Speaking of Jim, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, he he wrote the music for the next uh, musical sequence, which is a thing called Sax and Violence. It's a showpiece for. Zoot, who uh, is not particularly happy about it, but uh, has been asked to play a, a solo in this particular number, where it's just like a single honk at the end of each phrase, and then Bananaman shows up as a interloper with a bell. So uh, th- that's all. There's not a lot to say. Like I-, I couldn't find any additional information about the music other than that Jim Henson wrote it. So
0: well, so here's a couple interesting things about it. Uh, one is that. This also was on the Muppet Show cast album, and it's introduced by Nigel, who in the context of the Muppet Show, we've seen as the leader of the Muppet Show orchestra, but we haven't really heard from yet, but Nigel was the host of the second Muppet Show pilot called Muppet Show Sex and Violence, not to be confused with this number, which is Sex and Violence. And yet, as far as I can tell, this number was not originally created for Muppet Show Sex and Violence, but perhaps was inspired by it. Nigel is played by Jim, so for years listening to this on the record, I just assumed that it was Kermit having the conversation with Zoot. So it's weird to see it and be like, oh no, it's not Kermit. It's someone else who almost was Kermit in the sense (laughs) that he almost was the host of the show, but is not the host of the show, and instead is largely forgotten. So much so that when they eventually had Muppets Tonight, they just created a whole new character who ran the show, also named Nigel, but not this Nigel.
1: I, um, in my my elementary school and middle school, you we were required to take an instrument from fifth to eighth grade, and I played percussion. Um, but I was deeply uncoordinated, um, mm-hmm. so like I had rhythm, and I you know could could do stuff. But like I could never play a drum set, so I played a lot of like triangles and bells and the occasional timpani. And so I related deeply to phenomena in this number, uh, and it just brought me great joy because I was like, oh, I could do that. I could play that bell, <laughs> and I would enjoy playing that bell. And uh, and he he seems to have great joy in playing that bell.
2: He probably wouldn't enjoy punching Zoot in the face as much as Manamana no. seems to enjoy
1: it. No, he takes it a little too far. But until then, I was relating deeply. <laughs> this
0: made me wonder, this Manamana's role in this is not so different from his role in his signature number where someone else is performing a song and he comes in to fuck it up. And I wonder if this was going to be a running gag that they just never ran with. It's, or maybe they did run with it and I just can't think of any other examples of it. Yeah,
1: it's a great puppet too. So it's kind of a shame that he he doesn't, as far as we remember, it doesn't come back. Cause he's really a joy to watch.
0: He does appear
1: in the audience
0: at the end of this episode, which also struck me as weird. Like
1: why is a performer in the audience? If you finish your, you finish your bit, you go out through the past door and you watch.
0: I guess.
3: So the last number is some enchanted evening, which is very famous. I don't think I have to give a whole lot of background on it. It's a Rogers and Hammerstein song from musical South Pacific. And it's sung by Bert. And, uh, I I think this entire episode is such a like a showcase of the genius of Frank Oz, both from the Lydia stuff to the all of the Fozzy stuff to
2: Bert having a moment to shine. I just, ugh, he's so great.
1: He's so great.
2: I would watch him sing all of Rodgers and Hammerstein. <laughs> I want an evening, Bert <laughs> sings.
0: The Bert <laughs> and I. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The sound of Bert. <laughs> uh
2: the, the thing is
3: the, the song is typically sung by like an operatic baritone, so there's something about the like readiness of Bert's voice that I found kind of moving, and I, I think we have a clip.
0: Oh
1: Connie. Ha
0: <laughs> <laughs> ha.
3: Once you have found her, never let her go Once you have found her,
1: never let her go
3: Like it's funny, but I also find it kind of moving. There's something about the like naked vulnerability of, of a Muppet voice singing a big operatic song that
1: Well, and because it's Bert, I mean we'll get into the Bert Nerney of it all a little later, but I I cried a little because it's also Bert having a victory. Yeah. Which he doesn't get very often. Like he gets he gets a number, he gets he gets Connie. It's I don't know, it's so lovely.
2: And Connie Stevens, again, being game for anything, she doesn't get to sing in this. She just comes and passionately caresses Bert. She twirls him because when you're dancing with a Muppet, you have to be the the lead. (laughs) (laughs) It's gorgeous. She's very committed to it. You can see the passion on her face.
3: Ready? Three, two, one, fire!
2: All right, so this is the shot out of a canon section when we discuss the canonical elements of the Muppet Show that appear in this episode. I have a bit of an overall thought uh, getting to the backstage story. We have, and I should uh, attribute this properly, I uh, synthesized this based on some Tough Pigs articles that I went back and read when I uh, learned that we were talking about this episode. I wanted to read some reviews from Danny Horn and Ryan Rowe, so I want to make sure that I am citing them properly. But We're talking about the Muppets trying to distinguish themselves as a primetime show and in an era where the Muppets are kind of becoming known as being a part of Sesame Street. And we want to make sure that the Muppets are for grownups. They blow things up. There's sex. There's violence. And yet they bring in Ernie and Bert to promote this episode, which puts them in a weird Place Not that Ernie and Bert are not uh, adult-style entertainment. They definitely are. They definitely uh, have that dynamic about them. But what we've got in this episode is kind of everybody brings their self-loathing. That's carrying over from the droop self-loathing. We've got Gonzo self-loathing in the Joel Grey episode, and we've got Fozzie thinking that everybody hates him in this episode. It's It's kind of... Sad and weird. We haven't quite gotten into the uh, Muppet style of irreverent exuberance or sincerity. We're still trying to find our footing. There, there is some something about Gonzo that's fully formed already in these early episodes. He's eating rubber tires in this episode. He's growing a tomato plant while playing the 1812 Overture on violin for just a few seconds. But there is something. Strange and middle ground that's kind of nowhere ground about where the Muppets are landing, as far as whether they're for adults or whether they are actually children. Because in this backstage story, Gonzo is coming to Hilda, the wardrobe mistress or seamstress person backstage, and saying, I have this teddy bear. I was really hoping that you could repair him. <laughs> she says, Don't you think you're a little old for a teddy bear? He says, You think I'm, we should really just play a clip of this.
0: Gonzo, aren't you a little old to carry
3: around a teddy bear?
2: Really? You think I'm emotionally mature enough to move up to a
1: raggedy
3: Ann? (laughs) Gonzo, I categorically absolutely refuse to repair that teddy bear. Can I take that to mean
0: maybe? Oh. Oh, come on, Hilda, what do you say, huh?
3: I say that bear is the worst thing I have ever seen in this theater. (laughs) Why not get rid of
2: him? (laughs)
1: The bear is the worst thing she's ever seen in this theater. (laughs) My whole life is flashing
3: before my eyes.
2: Poor Gonzo, poor Fozzie.
0: It's such a great Frank Oz acting moment, though. Like, Fozzie is, is upstairs and in the background, but he's just like your eye just goes to him. And as he sort of overhears and reacts and it is both hilarious and heartbreaking all at once. Like I got full on belly laughs in my household when we watched it.
2: Yeah. Even in a later segment when they have a a little door with a slot that opens somehow and he's spying so that he can overhear Gonzo and Kermit talking again about the bear. You're just looking at Fozzie and like just the little slit where his eyes are (laughs) just to see what he's doing. Yeah. All right. So we're going to barrel through some of these, uh, cannon bits we have Be- uh, barrel through bear yeah that's what we're doing
3: the bear can barely folks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: yeah well pleased all right so we've got uh the Swedish chef in not his overall debut because he did appear in the sex and violence pilot but it is his muppet show debut bringing a whole new meaning to Tilled meatball bounces because he is in fact serving up some bouncy meatballs Turns into a tennis match against Statler. Uh, Waldorf calls out 15 love. I don't know what that means. I don't speak tennis. I'm sure somebody's winning and somebody's losing. Or maybe love means everybody's winning? I don't actually know. Wayne and Wanda was on the list, even though they don't have a number. I think we have a, a clip for this, too.
0: Hermit's not here, Wayne. Hmm. Hiding from my wrath, no doubt. That's funny. He's not on stage either. Wanda. No one is on stage. You mean? Yes, this is our chance. We must grasp it. But this is supposed to be the place for the Connie Stevens spa. Go! Oh, we'll cut the Connie Stevens spa.
1: Connie Stevens enters. Yes.
2: So from the moment that Wanda notices that nobody's on stage here, we're getting to uh, th- this uh, fits into the shot of out of a canon section because this is a canonical paradox of the Muppet show. Frequently, no one is on stage but in this case i got a chance to count how long no one was on stage it's 2 minutes and 15 seconds that elapse in between Wanda noticing no one's on stage and when Kermit goes out to introduce Connie Stevens i will note that at least the mutations because there's a moment backstage where he says oh we've got a group for you and they shoot past her and bump her aside at least they've noticed nobody's on stage all the action is happening off stage while the audience is probably just sitting around and with nothing happening on stage should be tantamount to finding out that there's nobody piloting the plane. Like This is a problem that needs to immediately be solved. And nobody seems bothered by it. Just nobody's on stage.
0: It does raise the question as to whether the Muppet show within the show is performed as a like vaudeville entertainment for customers who are watching it live in the theater. Or is it something that they know is being recorded like a variety show to be broadcast later so the audience might be prepped for there may be some downtime in between acts while we set things up.
1: We never see cameras, right? Like, so well, and it's a, but there's also a laugh track for all the back. I mean, obviously it's a sitcom. I don't, I don't take any of this literally, but like there is a laugh track for all the backstage scenes as well. So who, who are those people?
2: <laughs> yeah. They get applause for numbers that happen backstage. Yeah. <laughs> We've got an at the dance segment. The thing that most stood out to me was that we see Dr. Teeth dancing with Mildred I'm going to assume that Dr. Teeth is the kind of dude who dated every single young lady who is associated with The Muppet Show. And now that he's done with all of them, he's now moved on to dancing with Mildred. Does that sound right to you guys? Totally.
0: Absolutely. I don't even know that he necessarily goes in that order. (laughs) Like, I I don't think he discriminates.
2: Yeah, just if if, uh, Mildred's nearby, then we're going to dance with Mildred.
1: That works, too. It's free, you know, whatever.
2: Yeah, you're right. I think Dr. Teeth could go for just about anybody.
3: Animal uh, practicing in this bit made me laugh out loud every single time I watched it. I think we have a dip. two,
1: three, dip. One, two, three, dip. One, two, three, dip.
3: (laughs) Even in clip form, it makes me laugh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to add that although it's not in the the at-the-dance sequence in this episode. In a previous episode, we saw an at-the-dance bit where there was what I call Muppet body horror when uh, one Muppet's nose comes off and accidentally gets attached to a different Muppet. Later in this episode, there's a bit with Bert and Ernie where they discuss the nose bit as though that's something that would never happen on The Muppet Show.
1: This is, uh, the DVD pop-ups were very, very excited to tell me in all caps that this is the first time that Miss Piggy hits Kermit.
3: Oh, uh, uh, Piggy, uh, ha- have you met Lydia? No. Have you met my left fist? Hmm?
1: <laughs> uh, it's not yet a karate chop, but it's a full-on punch. Christy noted earlier that that Lydia number was shot later, so it's sort of all about what order anything is happening in, and, you know, Piggy and Kermit's relationship isn't actually established if this is episode two, so whatever, but it's a it's a fun clip, and... Uh, I enjoy that they put that in all caps on the DVD.
2: And before we wrap up, I have a couple of quick uh, awards. I've I've noted that my favorite Muppet of the Week is Lydia. There really isn't any other contender aside from the dress that Connie Stevens is wearing when they sign off. It's, somebody help me describe it. There's so much going on.
0: It is, I think, largely purple with a couple of stripes around the wrists. And it kind of has a cape,
2: I think. They're rainbow stripes. It's like simultaneously a dress that is form fitting, but it's also a wrap. Like, I I don't know how to describe it. But they they give oh, sorry, it's Connie's it's pink. St- pink. It is pink, not purple. I didn't want to correct you, <laughs> but they. It's, it's um, pink, but
0: the rainbow starts with purple, which is why I
1: have purple in my head. Yeah, that works. We'll we'll put a screenshot in the show notes. You can all judge for yourselves.
2: Yeah, and you can see the. Muppet version of Connie Stevens wearing a sort of replica of the same dress, but not nearly as complex. There wasn't room for a
0: rainbow
1: on that. Right. She just
0: gets a couple stripes, whereas Connie gets the whole rainbow.
1: And she, unlike Juliet Prowse seems slightly alarmed by her Muppet doppelganger, <laughs> which is a reaction. I appreciate <laughs> that. That's the correct response. Uh, yes. Agreed. I
0: mean, this also, this dress on Connie Stevens is all about her breasts. Like it's, there's a lot of cleavage happening. Uh, and thankfully the Muppet less so.
1: Yeah, then this is what we are talking about earlier, right? The Muppet version of this makes sense for a Muppet. It doesn't feel weird. It, it And is also kind of gorgeous. I, I really liked it.
2: I am all about that dress. It's my secret favorite Muppet of the week. And I have a, one last quick award. I have a favorite line of the week that I think we have a clip of.
1: Uh, do you think this show is educational?
0: Yes, it'll drive people to read books.
2: Just the way he delivers books. I love it so much. (laughs) I
0: I want to give a set design award for Swedish Chef's Kitchen, which I had forgotten what his original kitchen looks like and it's so 70s. It's all like dark brown tiling and and like copper pots hanging in the background. We'll have to keep our eyes open for when that gets redesigned because it's not the kitchen that I
1: remembered. This is not a Sesame Street podcast, but I don't I don't want to leave without just saying a little bit more about Erton and er- 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 Bernie. Uh, Bert and Ernie. <laughs> I don't remember feeling this way as a child. I you know I, I loved rubber ducky like they were great, whatever. But like as an adult, I hate Ernie so fucking much. <laughs> he is awfully mean to his best friend. It's awful. Gee, it's
3: really
0: great to be here, right, Bert?
1: <laughs> ah guess so. Well, what's wrong, Bert? Well, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I feel funny being here. This is a big TV variety show, you know. Well, so? Well, I'm, I'm no performer. Oh, Bert, a suave, sophisticated showman like you, Bert? Oh, sure, sure, you see, I know you. You're gonna keep on saying I'm suave and sophisticated, and then when I start to believe it, then you're going to say how pointy head I have and how floppy arms I have and, a, and how dull I am. I know you. Bert,
3: Bert, now, now, you must admit, though, Bert, that the head up there is
0: a little bit pointy, Bert. And you must admit that the arms are a little bit floppy and soggy, Bert. See Mm-hmm, now? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Bert? What? Bert, the nose is still loose, Bert.
1: <laughs>
0: now cut that out.
1: Oh, oh I'm sorry, Bert. Here. There we go, Bert. Yeah. See what I mean? I mean, that old loose nose joke is funny on Sesame Street, but uh, this is big time, Ernie. I mean, they're expecting an act or something. Hey, Bert, wait a minute. You can do an act. And this is such a perfect example of, like, he is mean to him at the beginning, and then he, he, he he basically forces him, he shoves him into the number, and sets him up for failure, and then Bert succeeds, does a wonderful job, literally brought me to tears, and then at the end of it,
3: Ernie, did I just make a complete fool of myself?
0: Absolutely, Bert. Take me home. I feel terrible. Terrible,
1: (laughs) Bernie is... uh, Bernie, I did it again. Ernie is such a dick. (laughs) 2021, used to saying Bernie. Ernie is such a dick, and I just... In the context of The the Muppet Show, it actually feels totally appropriate and right, but, like, I, I... I don't understand what they were going for, uh, like in the world of children's programming. And it like brought up a lot of feelings for me. Clearly. I mean, we could talk about this on a later episode, but I think we,
0: we should probably do a little bit of a deep dive into Frank and Jim as a comedy duo Mm -hmm. and the ways in which, uh, they're relying on certain tropes and relationships from famous comedy duos in the past. And, you know, what is it that they're taking from say Laurel and Hardy or, uh, you know, Jack Benny and Rochester or whoever else that, that I think plays into this relationship. And it, it takes time for them to sort of develop from where a comedy duo to where a children's television comedy duo with Bert and Ernie. Cause I think that Bert and Ernie's relationship also changes over time.
2: Did Ernie ever stop being a dick?
1: I don't think so. Uh,
2: He becomes
1: uh, a different kind of dick. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Younger listeners, send us, send us your Bert and Ernie clips from, you know, Later,
2: <laughs> your favorite Ernie Dickery,
1: or, or 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 if Ernie changed, let us know.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Adam. I, I remember the heartbreak of realizing as an adult because I always kind of thought that you know Bert's supposed to be kind of a sad sack and you're supposed to dislike him, and that's how I felt as a kid. And that at some point in my adult life, continuing to watch Sesame Street as an adult because that's what I do. But yeah, at some point I realized, oh, oh my
1: it gosh, hit me. <laughs> Ernie's the. Worst. I
0: mean, I definitely saw yeah. who like. Bird I used name. to identify as an Ernie, and now I definitely identify as a bird. Oh, yeah. I made that switch.
3: <laughs> same, same, same.
2: <laughs> we did it.
0: All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. We're recording this in early February, but by the time you hear this episode, the Muppet Show will be on Disney+. Plus. So we hope you'll watch along and share your thoughts with us. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppetergy, or on the web at Muppetergy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David
1: Lovey.
2: I'm sorry. We should cut the part where I don't know what to say.